So Ezekiel chapter 40, and what we are seeing here now is kind of really a, a, a bit of a change um, in flow. We're moving to really this last section now in the book of Ezekiel. We've got a few more chapters to go, and then we're going to be done. It's going to bring us right into our, our Christmas season, which would be great. But as we move into chapter 40 today, this last section is, of Ezekiel, it it continues to head in this direction of God revealing to us what he has in store for Israel because that's kind of been some of the things that we've been discussing in the last few chapters of Ezekiel is seeing what God has in store for his, his people Israel for this nation. In chapters 36 to 37, we saw, I, I gave you a, a, a trivia question last time, didn't go so well, I think I'm gonna try it again. Chapters 36 to 37, we saw what happening with Israel? Restoration, regathering. Well done. Yay, we did it. All right. Two weeks ago, there was just crickets chirping, but uh, we got it today. Well done. The, the regathering, the restoration of, of Israel back into their homeland, that was chapters 36 to 37. In chapters 38 and 39, we saw an upcoming invasion, this prophetic word, this Gog-Magog battle that would be taking place with this, this alliance of nations, this confederacy of nations that will come against Israel. There'll be something that's going to provoke these nations we saw Russia, Iran, and Turkey in chapters 38 and 39 as being kind of the main players, but other nations involved with this. Coming against Israel, it says that God's got this hook in their jaw. There'll be something that they're not gonna like what Israel's doing or something that they like that Israel has that they're gonna want for themselves. But there's gonna be this upcoming invasion. Once Israel is back in their land, it's gonna become just continually fruitful and abundant. And there's gonna be something that's going to provoke these nations to come against them well God's going to use that upcoming invasion to really open the eyes and the heart of his people Israel to see their need for the Lord God tells us that he will then when he stops that invasion because it'll be a work of God that his name will be glorified in the nations and certainly in Israel and so while that's all going down now it's bringing us in that battle into the tribulation time, through the seven-year tribulation. But then in chapters 40 to 48, we begin to see the plans that God has to renew his people Israel and reestablish his kingdom among them and his presence with them. All right? So chapters 36 to 37, the regathering of his people Israel. In chapters 38 and 39, we begin to see God just kind of um, reestablishing his relationship with Israel, and then in chapters 40 and all the way to 48, this renewal of his kingdom and his presence among his people. Now those last two chapters that we studied, chapters 38, 39, interesting prophetic chapters, no doubt, but it took us through some of those key events we believe are going to happen during the tribulation period. The church will have been raptured up. I believe, this church primarily believes that the church is gonna be raptured up before the tribulation will enter into then this seven-year tribulation period where God, once again, is dealing directly with his people Israel, all right? He's kind of renewing this work in their lives. And through the seven-year tribulation period, 
as I said, Israel's going to have their eyes open, their hearts regenerated, and they will enter into that new covenant with the Lord. They will, and that, what's going to happen then is going to usher them right into this period of time that we're discussing now in our passage, which is the millennial reign of Christ. All right, this thousand year reign, I believe it's going to be a literal thousand year reign where the kingdom of God is established once more here on this earth. It's going to be an exciting time. And that's this period of time that Ezekiel is taking us through from chapters 40 to 48 now. And so with that, Ezekiel is given a vision that is going to consist primarily of a temple. A temple. That's interesting. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Let's read these first five verses to give us a bit of context and a bit of a, a running start here. Ezekiel writes, In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was captured on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. Where? To Jerusalem. In a vision. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on it toward the south with something like the structure of a city. He took me there and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand and he stood in the gateway. Verse four, and the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now, verse five, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. And he measured the width of the wall, structure one rod, and the height one rod. So now we see that Ezekiel is going to be given this kind of vision, this, this measurement now uh, of the temple. He's going to go on a bit of a tour now of this upcoming temple that's going to sit there in Jerusalem during the millennial reign. We'll talk about that a little bit here coming up. But the vision, notice, first of all, it comes, it says, in the 25th year of our captivity. It's April 28th now, 573 BC. It's 14 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This is the time period now. They've been sitting in captivity Ezekiel was taken into captivity in Babylon before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. It's while he's been in captivity that he's heard news of the, the city, the temple being destroyed. More people have been taken into exile now after that event. And so now it's 14 years later. They've been sitting there wondering, is God done with us? Is God over us now? Is God moving on? Because we no longer have a temple. The temple to them was kind of like their safeguard. Like we got the temple. This means nothing's going to happen to us. Although we might hear of nations coming, bearing down against us to take us out. The, the temple spoke of God's presence. And they thought if the temple is here, God will never allow anything to happen to the temple. We're safe, they thought. But now they've seen the temple destroyed, the city sacked, and, and they're wondering, in captivity in Babylon as strangers in a foreign land, is God done with us? Boy, we might go through periods of time where we wonder, you know, where's God in all of this? 14 years Ezekiel is waiting until God begins to really show him a, an incredible vision, a renewal of the temple, and, and, and meaning signifying that God still has plans for his people. God still has plans to be present 
with his people, and that's what the temple would be speaking of here, his presence being with them. Now, before we move on, I wanna look at a few differing views that are given for the whole kind of timeline of this chapter or these chapters and, and what's really being spoken of because there's different you know, views, different scholars that say, oh, this really implies this or it means that. And so I wanna look at a few of these differing views with you. So some have interpreted these remaining chapters as referencing Israel's return to the land immediately after their captivity and the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel's leadership. But remember again, that temple, um, and then Herod built onto it afterwards, that temple didn't look anything like the measurements that we're gonna see given in, in Ezekiel, all right? And that temple also was destroyed by the Romans, all right? So it doesn't seem like this would be fitting just that temple. It's very different in size and measurements, as we'll see. Secondly, people will say, well, we believe this is fulfilled in a spiritual sense by the church. That this isn't really speaking in a literal way of Israel and God's plans of Israel, but really it's tying into what God's going to do in and through the church. But then you wonder, well, this is all symbolic. Why is there such, and we'll see, you will see if you stay awake through this, but you will see that there's just a lot of detail given. There's a lot of specifics given to things that you're just like going, wow, God is really certain to lay out in great detail all the designs of this temple. If it's all symbolic, why would he have to go through all of that? All right? So number three, some will say this is yet a future eschatological kingdom, or sorry, it's, um, yeah, a future eschatological kingdom, but really, again, a, a symbolic one. So they're saying, this is speaking of something to come, but really having a lot of symbolism to it as well. And these interpreters aren't expecting a literal temple complex with worship. They say, God's speaking of something for the future, but we don't really mean to say that there has to be an actual temple that's built in it. So that's what that view would hold. And then lastly, another uh, popular view, and it's the view that I would hold to. Many take this passage as a prophecy <clears throat> set in this apocalyptic literary genre that anticipates a literal fulfillment in the future, that everything that God is laying out is going to come to pass exactly as he says, that there will be a literal temple there in the millennium. Some of the descriptions have symbolic significance as well as literal reality, and some teach spiritual lessons. Nevertheless, the revelation concerns a future temple, the worship, and the physical changes in the promised land when Israel, and, and not the church, because the church is raptured up, but when Israel dwells there securely during the millennium. And we'll see all these things unfolding as we go through the rest of Ezekiel. So this is the reading of the text that seems most consistent with the rest of the book and the rest of scripture. And that's the view that I hold to that we're dealing with a literal temple that's gonna be built during the millennium. Now we'll discuss why that is so. But look at what <clears throat> um, commentator McDonald said. He said, non-literal interpreters maintain that this prophecy is a symbol of the Christian church. However, this major prophecy in the book of Ezekiel contains descriptions, specifications, and measurements of the millennial temple, which are so exhaustive that one may actually make a sketch of it, just as one might of Solomon's historic temple. In fact, F. Gardner in Ellicott's commentary on the whole Bible succeeds in sketching the layout of the millennial temple 
all the while denying it is possible. <laughs> this has prompted Elva J. McLean to comment that if an uninspired commentator can make some sense out of the architectural plan, doubtless the future builders, builders working under divine guidance should have no trouble putting up the building. All right, so very interesting there. Now, <clears throat> let me just say that we've seen um, a few different temples built and we're gonna see a couple more temples being built because I also believe that during the tribulation, we are gonna see a temple sitting there in Jerusalem. A temple that I believe the Antichrist is gonna be very instrumental in securing for the Jews because the Jews are gonna enter in, as Daniel says, into this peace treaty with this Antichrist. And, and, and there's been many times where I've thought, why would the Jews ever kind of fall in line or partner with this man that's gonna be the Antichrist? What, what's gonna cause him to stand out in a way where the Jews are going to accept him open-armed? And when I've been in Jerusalem, I've talked to people and I've asked them, what is it that you're looking for in the Messiah? How are you gonna know who the Messiah is? And here's what they'll say. Because he will lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. He'll lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. And that's where I believe the Antichrist is gonna come onto the scene and he's going to secure the ability for the Jews to rebuild their temple. Listen, there's the Temple Institute in Jerusalem today that I've been to on a number of occasions, which is super exciting. But what the Temple Institute has is all the furnishings ready to go for the temple. They believe that we need to see a temple built. And they got all the furnishings, all the different instruments. They got the robes for the priests that I've been able to see, take pictures of that you're not supposed to apparently. But, um, and you've got all these things set up, established, ready to go. So that when the temple begins to be built, and, and I believe it'll happen very quickly, that everything's ready to come into it. Like we saw even going through our study on Wednesday in the book of, uh, I think it was Leviticus, where you know one of the things that they need is a, a red heifer to, to sacrifice, to burn some of these ashes in the, in the purification, the consecration ceremony for the temple. Well, well, there's been red heifers that have been discovered in the past, very few, it's a very rare occasion, um, but then a, they've been found to have some defects. Well, just in this last year, another red heifer's been born that so far has no defects that they feel this is what we need again to be able to have our temple, to be able to dedicate and consecrate our, our temple is this red heifer, one that's been born just in the last few months here. So very interesting stuff. Um, and so I say all that to say that there's a temple that's gonna be built during the the tribulation and the antichrist is going to secure that for the jews is going to make them cause them to see that they think this is the messiah but what's going to happen is daniel says that halfway through the tribulation he's going to go in and there's going to be this abomination of desolation the antichrist is going to go in the temple and seek to be worshipped as god he's going to he's going to do something that's going to cause the jews to recognize this is not the messiah and he's going to turn on on the jews and so the Antichrist is gonna be seen for who he really is and it's at that point that the Jews are gonna, are gonna have to run when, when Jesus himself says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, flee to the mountains, go, run. 
where I believe they're going to be in hiding in Petra, I believe. And, and it's there when Jesus comes back that he's going to reveal himself to them. And that's when they will look up, as Zechariah tells us, and they will see the one whom they have pierced. So we're getting a lot of stuff that you don't need to do. Maybe your brain is swimming right now, but I love talking about this stuff. So we'll try to keep it on track here. I really don't have much to say through the rest of these chapters in Ezekiel, so I'm trying to stall a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> but... <laughs> If only you knew how true that was. But um, so, so, um, so a, a temple is going to be built in the tribulation. But again, what's going to happen in that temple? Well, what do we see happening when, when Jesus comes back again? Now, when he comes back, I believe there's going to be kind of a, a, a campaign in a sense. He's going to show himself to the Jews. He's going to break up battles going on with the Battle of Armageddon. And then he's going to come and he's going to set his foot down. On the Mount of what? Mount of Olives. And it's going to be split in two. That's going to lead right down into Jerusalem, the, the temple. I think Jesus just coming, setting his foot down upon the Mount of Olives is going to cause that temple to be just destroyed. You know? Maybe that's going to take place during the Battle of Armageddon. I, I don't know. But that temple is going to be gone. And the landscape is just going to drastically be changed as, it, as we enter into this millennial reign of Christ. When he comes back, he sets his foot down physically and literally, and he ushers into this, into this kingdom, this reign of Christ for a thousand years. And so there will be a new temple that will be built. And that's the temple that we see here in Ezekiel. And again, I think it's just gonna be a great reminder for us that God is here present with us. Oh, we don't need a temple, but this has been so much a part of Israel's history and so much a part of their history where they haven't had a temple. That'll be a great reminder in those days there where they're reigning and ruling with, with Christ being in the, in, the, in the kingdom here to see this temple. And again, that, that God is, is with them. Gonna be great, gonna be glorious. So that's kind of the scene we see unfolding. And in this vision, Ezekiel, he, as we saw there in verse um, in verse, uh, oh, in these first few verses we read that there was a man that appeared to him that begins to show him around. And this man was, was, had this appearance like bronze, it says. So no doubt we believe that this is an angel that is showing Ezekiel around. He's gonna take him on a little tour around Jerusalem and of the temple. And so this angel is there guiding um, Ezekiel. And it says he's got a line of flax there with him. Uh, a line of flax, which is, seems to be most likely like a, a tape measure that he's got, that he's going to be having Ezekiel measuring some things or revealing these measurements to him. And he's also got this measuring rod, which is like a yardstick. And Ezekiel is going to be called to measure the temple. Measuring not only provided data, but it also indicated ownership. God was having Ezekiel now mark out something that God was creating and offering for his people. Now, we see there that it had, this measuring rod was six cubits long. Six cubits. Now, let me just say that a cubit, typically the standard measurement of a cubit was 18 inches. They measured it from the elbow right to the tip of, a, uh, of the finger. And so on a typical man, it was 18 inches. Mine's, my cubit is 14 inches, and that's fine. We don't need to go there. But standard, average, 18 inches. And so that was the measurement of a cubit. But here we see that this rod was six cubits and a handbreadth. 
handbreadth was three inches. And so we've got a measurement now, not of 18 inches, but of 21 inches. So the measurement of the cubit, some call this like the royal cubit or a, a long cubit. And so this cubit is 21 inches. Um, so it's important to know as we go through these measurements and some of the figures that are given. So this measuring rod, six cubits, would be, how big anybody want to take a stab at it? Math, any math whiz? How much? How many? Ten and a half feet. Six cubits at 21 inches. Ten and a half feet. We got it? I was, I was kind of looking for clarification myself, but okay. We'll just say ten and a half feet. It's, okay, we'll go with that. All right. So look at verse six. And again, listen, I'm going to cover a little bit here. We're not going to read every verse here, okay? Um, let me read a few verses, and then you'll see why we're not going to read every verse here today. Verse six, then he went to the gateway, which faced east, and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, so 10 and a half feet wide. And the other threshold was one rod wide or 10 and a half feet wide. Each gate chamber was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubits and the threshold of the gateway by the vestibule of the inside gate was one rod. Verse eight, he also measured the vestibule of the inside gate one rod. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway eight cubits and the gate post two cubits. The vestibule of the gate was on the inside. Now, I, I know you're just super blessed so far by that reading. The anointing is flowing right now. I understand that. It's great. But I want to read that to show you that this is a lot of what we're going to be seeing as we go through these next few chapters. And I'm not trying to make light of this. It's, it's in the Word. And so it's important. And we'll, we'll discuss why it's important. But I'm saying that this gets pretty heavy and wordy and a lot of measurements that you just start to kind of swim with this. So we're not going to read through every section here, but I'll look just to kind of uh, summarize it briefly here. We'll stop on some interesting and, and applicable parts, no doubt, but verse 10 to 16 just continues to give some of the measurement of the eastern gate. Oh, and here, we got a little um, picture that I hope you can kind of see and read uh, some of these descriptions here a little bit, but this is the measurement or, or the, the layout of the temple here, okay? Um, and uh, yeah, so we're dealing with this eastern gate right now in verses 6 to, to 16. The eastern gate right over here, that was the gate that, you know, typically people come through is the gate that you would see, be able to see kind of right into the temple. So that was where the temple faced out of. And then you come into, in and through the eastern gate, and then you have the, the outer courtyard. But you'll also see that there's the southern gate, there's the northern gateway, and then there will be three more gates that we'll see in and around the, the temple that leads you into the inner courts. You got the outer court and then you have the inner court. And those gates had within them gate chambers. Gate chambers, six gate chambers where the temple guards would be allowed to stay. Six chambers in each gate. So gateways oftentimes going into a city were more than just like an entrance way, but they would design them where they would have different rooms there, conduct business and stuff, but um, areas where people could be hanging out. And also they would design gates oftentimes into cities kind of with, with 90 degree angles so that it would prevent things, you know, prevent invading armies from having just easy access, just rushing in. It would create little turns and stuff where people could be hiding in ambush, whatever. So here now we see these gates and they're big, they're large and they got 
six chambers, three on each side facing each other where, again, temple guards would be allowed to stay. Uh, verse 17, oh, let me give you this too, this temple size comparison, all right? So here's a comparison to some of the other temples we, we saw there. Herod's temple, the, the, the whole area there, Solomon's temple, much smaller, the court of the tabernacle. This is the one that they would set up and move around while they traveled in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And there you see in comparison to, say, a, an American football field, okay? So that gives you a little bit of context, again, to the size of this temple. And the temple won't be actual, the temple structure won't be that much bigger, but the whole area around is definitely taking up a, a lot of space there. So, Verses 17 to 19 deal with the outer court. And again, Ezekiel is told to um, measure some of the outer court. And there would be this pavement that he highlights all along there. And all those little kind of boxes you see all around the side. A lot of those are different um, chambers and storehouses. You know, when you're building something, boy, you want to have lots of storage, right? I tell you, I wish we had about five times the storage that we have in our church here. But when you're building something, it's like, hey, you got to make sure you got lots of storage. You never want to, you always want to like, no, I, I kind of, I need more room. I don't want, and then you realize afterwards we need storage. So a lot of these are just storage where priests are able to have storage of uh, garments or maybe to go and partake of some of their food that they would receive from sacrifices and stuff. So that's all those areas around there. Um, but the outer court here is in verses 17 and 19. Then in verses 20 to 23, we talk about the northern gateway on the, on the far top of that map there again. And then um, the southern gateway is discussed in verses 24 to 27. And then in verse 28, we see um, gateways of the inner court, verse 28 to 37. Now, Ezekiel is brought to the inner court Court. Now, let me just read verse 28, and we'll just read a bit here. Verse 28, then he brought me to the inner court through the southern gateway. He measured the southern gateway according to the same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to the same measurements. There were windows in it, and its archways all around it was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. There were archways all around, 25 cubits long, five cubits wide. Its archways Face the outer court, palm trees were on its gateposts, and going up to it were eight steps. So what you see happening now, you come in through the main gateway on the outside, you come into the outer court, but then you go through another gateway to go into the inner court, and then you begin to go up some steps. Eight steps are there. It's interesting that there's been no mention so far of a court of Gentiles or the court of women that was there in, in in previous temples, that's because when Jesus is reigning, there'll be no distinction or classes of people. We're all gonna be one under the reign and rulership of Jesus. We're gonna be united as one under Jesus. So there's no distinction made between court of Gentiles. Remember when John in Revelation was told to measure, he was told to measure a temple as well. But he said, leave out that outer court that's, that's been given over to the Gentiles. All right, so John's told to measure the temple that would come during the tribulation there in Revelation chapter 11, I believe it is. So there's no mention of those courts here, just, just another court. We're all, we're all together in this. And, and I love that entering the temple is an elevating experience. They're gonna be coming towards the temple and they begin to have this elevating journey. I believe that's the way it always should be. 
right? As we're going and approaching to come and gather in and with the Lord to worship him, it should always be an elevating experience. So there might've been things that we've been going through where we've been down and discouraged through the week, but the minute we say, oh, I'm going into the house of the Lord today, that should always create an ascending experience for us because we're coming to meet with God. Just like there were the Psalms of Ascent as they were preparing to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. It was a Psalm of Ascent because not only were they physically going up to Jerusalem, but it was to be an elevating experience in their lives as they come to worship the Lord. May that be so. May there, may there be a hunger and a desire on our parts to come and gather together as a church as we, we do today. There's something dynamic at work, I believe, because we know, oh, I can worship at home, or I can worship in my car, but there's something at work as we gather together with the church, together, and we lift up the name of Jesus. There's something that just causes our hearts to ascend before the Lord, and it should be that which encourages, edifies, and blesses us as we do, as we get our eyes on the Lord. Well, Look at verse 38. In verse 38, it says, there was a chamber and its entrance by the gatepost of the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. In the vestibule of the gateway were two tables on this side and two tables on that side on which to slay the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. At the outer side of the vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, were two tables, and on the other side of the vestibule, the gateway were two tables. Four tables were on this side, and four tables on that side. By the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. There were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, one cubit high. On these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks, a handbreadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the table. Notice we see three offerings being mentioned. The burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Now that's an interesting scene to have animal sacrifices in the millennial temple. I mean, was that just something that was reserved for Old Testament times? Now that's caused many students of the work to, to question even the literalness of this temple being built during the millennium because they wonder, wait a second, why do we need sacrifices? Jesus has come. And Jesus became that final sacrifice for us. Well, here's something we do know that those sacrifices that they were offered in times past never could remove sin. It was simply a covering. They were never meant to take away sin. Only, yes, Jesus could do that. It tells us in Hebrews 10, verse 4, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But then it says in Hebrews 10, 10, by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So if that be the case, what's at work here with sacrifices? I believe that just as these animal sacrifices all pointed ahead in Old Testament times to the perfect sacrifice that was gonna come through Jesus Christ, so too in the millennial, we'll be offering up sacrifices as a memorial, looking back on what Jesus has done for us. Just as today, we partake of communion and the, and the, the bread and the cup symbolize what Jesus did for us. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. During the millennium, we'll be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, not because we need to, but because it'll be a remembrance of God's provision and care for us during this pilgrimage through this world. And I believe sacrifices 
are going to be a part of this temple in the millennium as a memorial to reflect on the incredible work that Jesus did for us, that he forgave us, that he cleansed us, that he did the work to purify us and to bring us into right relationship with him. Going to be incredible to experience all that. Well, verse 44 to 46 deals with different chambers there in that temple for singers There were worshipers there in and around the temple. There will be chambers there for the priests. Outside the inner gate, various rooms. Some are used for the temple singers, some for the priests who are in charge of the operation of the temple, and other rooms for those priests that were in charge of the altar. And then in verses 47 to 49, we get just some of the dimensions of, again, the inner court and and the vestibule around that. But then moving to chapter 41, we see now reference being made to the actual sanctuary and to the holy place. Look at verse one of chapter 41. Then he brought me into the sanctuary, the the actual temple now, and measured the doorpost six cubits wide on one side and six cubits wide on the other side, the width of the tabernacle. The width of the entryway was 10 cubits and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on this side and five cubits on the other side. And he measured its length 40 cubits and its width 20 cubits. Also he went inside and measured the doorpost two cubits and the entrance six cubits high and the width of the entrance seven cubits. He measured the length 20 cubits and the width 20 cubits beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. Now, like I said, Ezekiel's taken into the sanctuary of the temple. Now it measured the same dimensions as Solomon's temple, but we're using a different cubit measurement now. So seemingly a little bit larger, but it had the same kind of proportions to it. But notice Ezekiel, he's not permitted to go into the most holy place or the holy of holies. The angel that simply notes This is the the most holy place here. It seems like Ezekiel could see into it, but he wasn't able to go into it. Ezekiel, remember, was a priest. And so he knew very well his, his limitations. And the holy of holies, this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, it was separated by a veil in Old Testament times. Only the high priest could enter into and only that one day of the year, which was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So only the high priest could go into so Ezekiel's not permitted to go into, but again, hasn't Jesus changed all of this? Remember when Jesus died on a cross? What happened? There was an earthquake. And so the temple, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It wasn't a work of man, that was a work of God. God was providing access into the Holy of Holies. So does this mean that we don't have access to it? Well, there's no mention of a veil here. We don't know if we're limited from going into the Holy of Holies. And, um, and again, as a reminder of just the holiness of God and our inability to, to achieve that in and of ourselves, perhaps it is open and just Ezekiel for this day was not allowed to go in there. We're not sure exactly how that's all going to play out. You can take that up with the Lord when you see him there. But get directions from him. Because I don't know if we're going to be in the Holy of Holies or not, or if it'll stand. It's just, a, again, a reminder of that holiness of God. But here's what we do know as Christians today. We have fellowship with God. We have open access. Jesus, we're, we're told in, in Hebrews that, that we can enter in with boldness now because of Jesus Christ. Enter in that throne room of grace. 
We have access now under this new covenant and through the work of Jesus Christ, fellowship, access to God, which I'm so thankful for. Well, then in verses 5 to 11, there were rooms all around the, the, the temple wall. And Ezekiel describes a group of rooms that are built onto the temple wall there where they begin again to go up. And these were rooms for storage. It would seem these walls were amazingly engineered as these side chambers became wider as they ascended to allow stairways to go down along the wall there and to move up between these three levels of, of rooms. 30 of these rooms built into three stories there in and around the temple. Very interesting. And then in verse 12, we see there's a building now at the western end of the temple. There's no, there's no western gate, interestingly, but there's a big building back there. I don't know what that building is. Again, you need to take that up with God when you get there. Ask him what that's all about here. But there's this building there. Now, in verse 13 to 26 now, we just basically have these general temple descriptions being given. And Ezekiel records the overall measurements of the temple. It's 100 cubits or 175 feet and the various courtyards around it. And Ezekiel notes that the inside of the temple is all paneled with wood. And the window frames are made of wood. It's got a great 70s vibe going on to it. Like every style just keeps coming back, doesn't it, right? So paneling of wood in the temple there, very interesting. Um, and he notes that there's a decoration theme inside the temple with alternating cherubim and palm trees. Very interesting. Each cherub is described as having two faces, one face of a man, one face of a lion. Um, and so in the temple, even in Solomon's temple and all throughout, there were, again, a great emphasis on this angelic kind of, you know, um, presence there. Uh, cherubim were all throughout the temple um, previously and so continues on here in this millennium, millennial temple. Now it's interesting to note that we only see one piece of furniture in the temple. This altar, it's mentioned in verse 22 there. The altar, it says was of wood, three cubits high, and its length, two cubits. Its corners, its length, and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. We don't hear mention of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the lampstands, the uh, table of showbread, um, but we have this altar here. There's an altar outside the temple, and there's this altar here. And some have, have wondered, you know, what this altar exactly is. Some have thought maybe it is used as the table of showbread. Others have believed it to be this altar of incense that sat in the original temple right before the Holy of Holies. This is what it, it seems to be. It makes the most sense. And it was the altar of incense that, again, the priest would burn the incense on, that smoke would lift up to the Lord, and it was that picture of the prayers of the saints going up before God. And again, I think just this altar being a reminder that we have this access this presence here now with the Lord we have this audience before God and the doors in the temple they're made of two wooden folding panels there in verse 24 each decorate also with this cherubim and palm tree theme to it chapter 42 verses 1 to 14 deal with all these rooms for the priests Ezekiel the priest then describes 
these rooms that are built into the temple for the priests. It seems he goes into a little more detail in measuring and describing these rooms because perhaps that was his occupation. He's like, oh, right, I get some rooms here. This is good. And these rooms are where, again, the priests would come in and eat their portion of the sacrifices where they could, you know, kind of store perhaps some of their garments or articles for service there. Now, um, verse 15, we'll, we'll keep moving on here. Verse 15 to 20 just describes the outer dimensions of the temple. Now Ezekiel, he's taken outside the temple here where again the angel measures the plot of land that the temple is sitting on. So all around here, uh, the plot is 875 feet by 875 feet. It's about the equivalent of three football fields long. So it's a large area all around that we see here. Now, as we read through this, these chapters, look, at, we just covered three chapters right there. Beautiful. Okay. And, and we're wrapping up here. But as we <laughs> read through some of it and, and highlight some other parts of it, you might kind of wonder, why all this detail? Why is there so much detail emphasizing all these things? Well, first of all, it's because God is a God of detail. And God is wanting to be sure that all these things are being carried out. He's given us the blueprint here now for what he has in store. And he's a God of detail. And as you think about this coming temple that will be built for the millennium, we must think about what God says in his word about us. That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or sorry, verse six, chapter 6, verse 17 and 20, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God lays out right here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, speaking about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, a great amount of detail. Blueprints for how we're to conduct ourselves, how we're to live. God is a God of order. He's a God of detail. These are not random suggestions, but they are coming from a God that knows what is going to help and strengthen us and how we're to be building our lives up. God doesn't want us struggling through life on a shaky foundation or living without following that blueprint that he's given us. So it says, hey, here's how I want you to live. I want you to flee these things that are not of me. I want you to do away with that because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were, you were bought at a price. So here's how I want you to conduct yourselves. Here's how I want you to live out this life that I've given you so that you can be a temple of the Holy Spirit, constantly being in that place of just fellowship with God living in the presence of the Lord. It's that then that ensures blessing in our lives and it's that which honors God ultimately. So God's laying out a great amount of detail and we're not done, we're gonna continue on looking at some of these things and kind of how it relates or applies to us and why God has it there but that's a, a good start here this morning as we kind of look to close out Ezekiel and see what God has in store for his people, okay? So let's pray. And then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we look to you right now and, and, and we do certainly ask, Lord, that you will just continue to 
teach us and instruct us, Lord, of these things that we've looked at today. Um, many of them can just go right over our heads, but I pray that you would grab these truths and plant them in our heart, Lord. Help us to see, again, just what you have in mind, what you have in store. Ultimately, just thinking about a temple in the millennium just reminds us, Lord, that here's a place that is a physical reminder of your presence with us, that you desire to dwell among your people, just as the, the camps in Israel would all camp out around the tabernacle. So too, Lord, you want to dwell in our midst and you want our lives to be centered around that place of worship of God. So may we do just that, Lord. Remind us of these things. Plant your truth into our heart. May we live it out and be reminded today how our bodies are to be lived as the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are with us. You're among us, Lord, and so I pray that we would live in constant worship and praise of you and with you. And so we pray these things now in your name, Jesus. Amen.